0: So the youth is is more of a longer term investment. And what you're saying is there are profound structural problems with this generation. We need to be able to connect with them now. It might not translate into a vote in, in this election or the next election, but sort of 10 years time, we want these people to know we were there for them, we understood them, we fought their battles for them. And now that they're starting to pay tax, now that they care about voting, and are invested in actual, local, and national politics, we want them to turn to us.
1: Hello. My name is Donald. I just did 10 push-ups, and welcome to Worldview. Worldview is a podcast where we explore everyone's perspectives on all things that can broaden our worldview. If you've liked our content so far and enjoyed it, Please consider liking this video, subscribing and donating on Patreon. Today we're talking with Gareth van Onselen. Gareth obtained a master's degree in sociology before he started working for the Democratic Alliance in various capacities which involved communication and political analysis. He has worked at the Institute of Race Relations as the head of politics and is currently the CEO of Victory Research. Gareth, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So Gareth, let's dive right into it. What are your local election predictions? And have there been any polls released? Because I haven't seen any.
0: Um, Well, I I really don't want to do any predictions, but uh, I can give you a kind of general lay of the land, as it were. Sure. Um, Look, the first thing to bear in mind is that Turnout in local government elections is much lower than it is in national elections. And historically, that has had uh, the effect of bolstering the opposition vote, because the opposition is far better in comparison to the ANC at getting its voters to cast their ballots on Election Day. So they sort of enjoy a small differential advantage. And that's why the DA, for example, has had its best results in local government elections, because it's just far better at doing that. Um, but uh, I think there is a big problem with turnout on a national scale. And uh, I mean, we saw the levels drop hugely, even in a national election in 2019 which hurt the DA badly and, and I don't think you're going to get that same differential advantage or at least it's going to be much smaller than it's been historically for the op- small opposition parties so that makes life tougher for them um, it also means it's harder for the ANC to fall below 50 percent not impossible I, I think those guys are sitting on the 50 percent margin and quite frankly it could go either way um, not that it matters that much in local government elections because. It's largely about the metropolitans. Um, as for the DA, well, I wrote a column uh, about a month or so ago saying it's very difficult to work out what a successful percentage for that party is. Um, on the one hand, it'll definitely want to do better than it is in 29 than it did in 2019, um, which it might be a different kind of election, but psychologically will make a big difference and it'll be able to spin that as having turned the tide. But there is an outside chance it could drop below twenty percent, and that would be a real crisis for the party. But I think the breakwater mark for it is is Cape Town. It it must hold Cape Town in this election. Um, Do you think Cape
1: Town is actually at risk?
0: Yeah, on the margins. I I mean, I don't think it's it's a absolute risk. And and if you had to ask me, now I'd I'd say the Diaz is likely to retain it. But you know things can go wrong Turnout can go wrong at at the
1: risk of whom who's gonna would be stealing their votes in Cape Town
0: um well what happened in 2019 although in the final few weeks or so the DA managed to turn the tide was a sort of swathe of smaller parties cut little bites out of the DA the ACDP the Freedom Front plus good um, there's no one main protagonist which seems to be eating into the DA's votes. It's all these what I call sort of death by a thousand cuts. Um, and that's really its problem in the Western Cape. And, and the, the rise of other parties there now, the Cape Coloured Congress looks like it might get a percent or two. And, and those all come at the DA's expense. So there's no one main enemy. Uh, I think it's got a lot of smaller battles and, and together they all add up to a to a sizable proportion of the vote. Uh, as for the EFF, local government elections, well, at least the one round of local government elections it's participated in so far haven't gone great, um, compared to its performance in national elections. Uh, it also hasn't had a chance to be able to campaign properly, lockdowns have stop, stopped it from sort of getting on the ground and talking to people in the way it does. And I think that's going to hurt the EFF too quite how much is difficult to say but I I would imagine it'll sort of be 10% thereabouts one side or the other um we'll have to wait and see
1: and I think a lot of people were surprised with the ANC's results in KwaZulu-Natal for example in 2019 do you see any potential upsets there for example in Durban could a coalition government arise there
0: I don't know enough about um Durban or Etiquini to, to comment confidently on that. Uh, I think the general problem you point to is is true. And in 2019, there was a significant decline for the ANC in, in KwaZulu-Natal. Um, whether that translates into it losing the metro there, I'm not sure. And, and whether or not it's managed to turn the tide, I'm not sure. The IFP has done quite well in a number of by-elections it hasn't turned the tide in any significant way it's not like you see a massive swing of support but yeah when the margins start to get tight for the anc like they're increasingly doing uh in all the provinces with big urban centers then this sort of stuff can hurt you and, and the da actually did well in KwaZulu natal in 2019 well relative to its other um, performances in other provinces so the ANC's kind of got a da problem in that province there are a number of parties there biting at it and yeah, we'll have to see. I'm not sure. I'm afraid I just don't know enough to say how it's going to play out in Itaquini.
1: And what do you think of um, Mashaba's new party? Um, do you think he's going to achieve anything in Gauteng?
0: Yeah, I definitely think there are a few percentage points on the table for him in Gauteng. Look, he seems to know his market quite well. He's The problem with all these new parties is they're kind of caught between the personality of the person who founds the party, which is usually a primary and substantial influence on that party, and the kind of noble ideals that go with starting a new party, you know, democracy has not worked for everyone else, all other parties are failures, we kind of can see the light and we're the way. But you then got this one big powerful personality who in, in Mashaba's case, you know, says a lot of mad things and tends towards a lot of demagogic positions, especially on things like immigration and the death penalty and stuff like that. Now, that's not to say there's not a market for that stuff, there, there absolutely is. And in fact, if, if he wanted to secure or be more certain about a, a fairly goodish result for a new party, he should actually play that kind of demagogic card much more than he does. Uh, it would be a small percentage, but there are a number of people out there who who like that kind of thing. Um, but as it stands at the moment, it's difficult to say what fundamentally differentiates him from, say, the DA. Um, he seems to be more or less... Well, I, I think definitely,
1: personally, um, I think he's definitely hitting on something with uh, in terms of immigration. I've written about this, called The Rational Standard, which is a libertarian um, website. And um, I think there's been polling that shows that I think about 70% of South Africans do not... F- consider immigration in a positive light that uh, um, immigrants in a positive light. They don't contribute positively to South Africa. And I think if you bang on that card, you might be hitting on something that. Yeah.
0: No, I mean, I, I think it's true insofar as there is quite a lot of xenophobia, to be frank, out there um, and a sort of hesitancy or fear of immigrants but you know you have to be careful with giving too much weight to these kind of things when it comes to actual elections you know polling also shows that the issue of immigration is way way down on the list compared to the other bigger problems and you know it might matter to people if if you only ask them do you care about immigration but if you make them choose between the economy or crime or education or healthcare or service delivery and infrastructure by the time they get to immigration it's like issue number 10 or 12 and so people that campaign on those bigger more important issues are just going to be far more powerful than i mean immigration is is not a vote vote winning um, issue in and of itself you have to have a substantive position on all that other stuff
1: okay so let's move on to the democratic alliance what do you think they should do to grow once more to perhaps reach the levels of 30 or 40 percent and actually becoming an actual government party
0: well lots of things um look my own cynical view is that i think there is a cap on how much electoral support the da can get uh in its current and by current I mean in, in in its sort of traditional guise the 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 kind of makeup and disposition and principles and values that have defined the party in its best sense since it formed in two thousand. I'd say that caps around thirty percent, maybe thirty five um and so you know one of the things people don't realize about the democratic alliance is that compared to its potential market, which I think is Around 30 to 35%. It actually does spectacularly well. I mean, to get 24, 25, or even 26%, which it got in 2016, when your cap is 30%, is just, I mean, <laughs> that is a really exceptional party. No, no one ever analyzes the DA like that in South Africa because for them, the cap is everyone all the time. They think every single black voter is available to the DA, every white voter, every colored Indian, socialist, Democrat capitalists, whatever, that everyone thinks everyone is the market, which is just not true of politics. So what you're really asking is how can the DA squeeze another three or 4% out of what's actually available to it? Well, some of it's got to do with reestablishing a kind of sense of conviction and purpose because it became very ambivalent and, and all over the place and a whole lot of issues. And I think it's done quite a good job in doing that. But from that point to, to grow further and to grow beyond the sort of 26 it got in 2016, which I don't think is possible in this election, but to do that, it needs to capture some hearts and minds on some big overarching issues and, and become synonymous with them. In the same way the EFF became synonymous with expropriation without compensation, the DA needs some big issues that are associated exclusively, exclusively with it on, on, on stuff that really matters to, to people. Um, but that's a kind of longer-term project. I don't, I don't know if that can be done before these elections.
1: So so when you say um, 30 or 35%, what do you base that on? Is that the liberals out there?
0: No, polling, really. I mean, the, the DA, you know, a lot of 20 years of polling. I mean, the DA has a particular offer, a particular set of values of principles. And really, at the end of the day you can analyze this quite closely, there's only a certain number of of South African voters who are interested in that offer. You know, um, in America, you don't go around saying, you know, the Democrats actually have 100% of the market available to them. Um, or or Labour Party has uh, in, in the UK has 100% of the, of the British votes available to them they, they stand for different things. And there are only so many people in the society that are interested in that offer. For that to change, you need some fundamental changes in the society, in either the society or the political party. Either the political party can change into something else. For the DA, maybe a kind of more social democratic, um, I don't know, with, a, with the emphasis on the social side of things, party that that grows its appeal to more people, but then you run the risk of compromising your principles. You, you have to change as a party. Or something fundamental happens in society. The ANC breaks in half um, over a long period of time. People, People's education levels start to impact on their worldview and, and a greater section of the market becomes available. But nothing like that has really happened in any substantive sense since 1994.
1: Um, so we've spoken to Dr. Franz Cronier, and he said that um, a true opposition to the ANC will only arise when they fall below 50 percent like the true the next governing party will only come into fruition then do you share his opinion I think you probably do because it's you you basically say the DA is not the next governing party it's going to be someone else that has to capture most of those votes well
0: I, I and mean, I know what France means and 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 I agree with him in the sense that I think something fundamental has to come happen to the NC, whether that's it's splitting or it losing 50% and resulting in some kind of internal crisis or whatever. Um, for the for the electoral landscape to change in a fundamental fundamental way nationally. But whether or not that will mean a different kind of ideological home or um, power base in South Africa, I'm not sure about I don't, I don't. And you know, if you add the EFF and the ANC's vote together, essentially exactly the same as what the ANC got in 1994. And it doesn't seem like I mean, you can reorganize that 66% of the vote share however you want into whatever kind of fractions you get or whatever. But I think a kind of nationalist socialist agenda is 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 still the most appealing to most people in South Africa. And that will actually define whatever government is to come for a while. Not necessarily at metro level, which is why local government levels are elections are always very interesting because urban centers do have a different balance of power and i think it is possible to put a coalition together in those kind of places that is that is not that kind of racial nationalism uh, at its core
1: so that basically probably explains the um, difference in um well that the loss of white voters um, for the DA in the 2019 elections they lost the urban voters because there's probably a growing disconnect between urban and rural areas and they're not as much as appealing to um, urban uh, rural voters as urban voters
0: well the, uh, the, uh, the da lost a little bit amongst all demographic groups um, but i'm not sure how helpful race is actually in analyzing the da's approach to voters there, there might have been a time when it was perhaps practically You know, it's it's principally, it's an aberration to analyze your electorate in racial terms, but but practically, perhaps that made sense. These days, I think the, the areas, the potential growth markets are the youth, which are fundamentally ignored and in a state of profound crisis. You know, in terms of education, higher education is just a funding disaster in terms of employment just a catastrophic crisis. And, and I mean, that that's the hotbed for a potential revolution there, down the line. And the middle class, I mean, the middle class, the most ignored group in South Africa. Um, there's no one who's really is its champion, who identifies themselves as its champion. And actually, I think those are the kind of two markets the DA should focus on going forward. I don't know enough and haven't read enough polling to know exactly how those markets are constituted politically but you know my instinct tells me there's that's quite a good way to restructure your strategy
1: and um, okay um but how do you see about it, do you actually going uh, after uh the younger audience how do they appeal sort of make themselves a cooler version of themselves well
0: the youth in politics is never there's never any short term benefit to investing in the youth to be brutally practical they don't vote until they pay tax and um for all the talk and fanfare about youth politics the youth when it comes to formal politics really just don't participate in large numbers you can have kind of outlier moments like obama and stuff who who can get a generation of young people to vote, but that's the exception rather than the rule. Yeah, I know. So, so the youth is, is more of a longer term investment. And what you're saying is there are profound structural problems with this generation. We need to be able to connect with them now. It, it might not translate into a vote in, in this election or the next election, but sort of 10 years' time, we want these people to know we were there for them, we understood them, we fought their battles for them. And now that they're starting to pay tax, now that they care about voting and are invested in actual local and
1: national politics we want them to turn to us um so do you agree with the sentiment that south africa is majority center right or do you, like you said previously it's more national socialist how do you combine those two really because i think a person um, like france cronier would say that south africa is more center right then for example, it's, it's more right leaning than the African National Congress and the media.
0: No, I, don't, I, don't, I think it's too simplistic to do that. I mean, I think South Africa is socially conservative and, and economically left leaning. Which is the kind of distinction you have to make. Um, and, and, and kind of holding it all together is actually a, a very liberal constitution. So you constantly have to fight for civil liberties on, on social issues, freedom of speech and association and, you know, freedom of information and all that kind of stuff. Society doesn't like that kind of thing. Um, and even when you get into, you know, the right to life and stuff, huge favorability for the death penalty. And, and um, it's because we're, well, in my opinion, uh, essentially a Christian nation. And, you know, Christianity does engender social conservatism. Um, but when it comes to the economy, then, you know, lean, we can lean very far left. we basically got a welfare state.
1: So that would um, probably explain why the IFP and the ACDP doesn't do so well, because they're fairly right-leaning in terms of economics. That doesn't really resonate with the average voter.
0: Yes, they're, they're also just... I mean, very bad at politics. <laughs> they don't, you know. Kenneth Meshwe is a, uh, you know, he's he's just from some bygone era. He he doesn't connect with anyone outside of a tiny group of fundamental supporters, and and there's no attempt either to broaden the ACDP or, or get a young leader who can speak to a new generation. Or it's just, you know, he he is the party, and the party this is anachronistic kind of problem the ifp is a similar kind of thing i mean the the you know Zulu nationalism tends to fluctuate in its loyalties um follows big men often uh, and so someone like zuma was able to attract a large number of um, traditionally ifp supporters to the ncl al- along with a whole lot of other stuff um And, you know, when he fades, the vote fades, and it fluctuates a bit more. But, I mean, I wouldn't put it down to any direct intervention on the IFP's part. I think they kind of just go with the flow and either lose or take up support as and when it becomes available.
1: Okay. And um, the next national election, do you possibly see the ANC falling below 50%?
0: Oh, that's that's definitely on the cards. Um, I mean... At the moment, I would say that's, that's the more likely outcome. But things can change. So I mean, you you know, I know that that's a pretty um, platitudinous position. But the the truth is, these local government elections will tell you something about um, how people feel about the ANC under Ramaphosa. And, And it's not so much in terms of 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 whether they think he's good or bad for the party, it's whether he can get those people who stopped voting to vote again. You know, because you can change people's minds. But once people have opted out of the system, it is very difficult to get them to vote again, even if you, you know, you can poll 100 ANC voters and 70% of them might say, well, Cyril Ramaphosa is great. But if only 30% of them voted last time, it's kind of irrelevant. You need to get that missing 40 percent back to voting and that is very difficult to do and that's the ANC's well it's all political parties apathy is a problem that affects all political parties in a different way but it's a big problem for the ANC
1: so can it literally be a problem in the next national election that it's just basically a drop in voter turnout there's no real party that gets new votes it's just a drop in voter turnout and mostly the the voters that stop voting is for the ANC so they, by definition, fall and support. <laughs>
0: well, no, I mean there's all these wonderful new parties that have uh, responded to the great uh, apathetic decline that defines South African politics, and I'm sure between Musi Maimane and Herman Mashaba and Patricia de these people will get our turnout levels up to record highs. Um, no. I think turnout is is a big and profound problem. And um, how you turn that around is is very, very difficult. I mean, you can do civic responsibility and education and try to instill in people some kind of culture of voting. But if they're fed up with national politics and feel it's hopeless, and nothing's going to change, doesn't matter how much you educate them, they're just not going to vote.
1: What do you think, um, now that you mentioned Maimane's um, uh, idea to now support 10 municipality um, councillors, I believe, I I can't precisely remember the details, but do you think that's going to be, he's going to actually succeed in making those independent councillors win?
0: Well, there are two ways of looking at what Maimane is trying to do. The the one is, the, the guy needs a job. Um, I mean, he he didn't have anything to do after he (laughs) left the DEA and he has no discernible skill set. So, you know, as much as he decried the nature of politics, politics was really all he could do from that point. And this whole independent, everyone's terrible and we're going to find a third way shtick plays very well with a number of um, quite rich people who are willing to donate either personally or, or via their NGOs to that kind of thing. It's it's sort of feel good democracy kind of things. And it's and it gives him something to do from nine to five. I mean, unpack this thing. For its own sake and and what he says and what he wants to do, it is the most confused. I, I can't make head of tail of it. from from what I understand, he wants independent people you know he's he's very happy that independent people are not allowed to contest in local and national elections, and he wants to support that. To do that, he wants to bring independent people under his roof and train them himself. To to which point, it's like, how, what you know, how are you going to bring together if these people are truly an independent spread? a kind of socialist, and a capitalist, and a racial fundamentalist and a libertarian, and, and train all these people. Okay, I mean, it's so so immediately, he's going to have to select people who actually align with what it is that he believes he he's, if he's true to anything that he says, he's not going to train someone to be a kind of EFF light
1: mm.
0: under an independent guise. So, so already, it's not really independence, he's, he's picked a number of people that suit his particular political worldview and will help them. So that's the, the first problem. The, the second one is, I don't know enough about the municipalities he's chosen. But I, I suspect if he's clever, which is debatable, <laughs> he would have chosen ones that um, give him a good chance of a good show. Because what you want to be able to demonstrate to your donors and to the world is that this model you've invented delivers something. Well, I don't know. I don't know how well independent candidates will do in terms of winning a majority, but they might well do enough to really split the vote and actually hand some municipalities to the ANC and then you would have achieved nothing really, you would have achieved the very opposite of what you set out to do when it's great that an independent got 20% of the vote, which almost inevitably will come from the DA because it's not going to come from the ANC. And you, you've, the result is that the DA didn't get a majority. The ANC did, got the biggest percentage, and it's now in power. And so it'll be interesting to look at these 10 municipalities once he's done with them and actually see what kind of effect he's had.
1: What's interesting to me as I see he's targeting two um, Western Cape municipalities. So I think he's actually directly targeting the DA in that sense. So... Yes,
0: well, I mean, the DA is, is the majority party in that province. So, yeah, those municipalities, I'm sure the DA's DA vote share would be on the table. Yeah,
1: yeah, but I mean, it's also, I agree with you. I don't really understand what he's trying to do. So, it's like his municipalities are spread all over the map. Like this Northern Cape and Free State. It's like, you're talking like EFF seats or ANC seats. It's just like, what are the principles of your candidates? What are, yeah? So, I don't really understand also what he's trying to do. Well, what
0: are, what are his principles? I mean, you read the one movement South Africa's set of principles and values and policies, which is kind of cobbled together from old DA stuff, and and there, there's it's difficult for me to say one particular issue in a crisp, clear way that differentiates what Mani stands for from what the DA stands for. I mean, yes, he's he's more open to kind of race and and the role that plays and quite where the boundary is. I don't know with him. But it's all kind of nitpicking. I don't know of anything fundamental that he's separate, you know, is incompatible with
1: the DA's viewpoint. Um, Do you think he's just indecisive or he's just um, I don't know, he's he's advised badly. I mean, we've interviewed Ellen Zilla and she said that he left the party just because he was advised badly. Do you think that's a legitimate excuse to say, okay, I was just
0: I think Zilla's got some issues with the people that worked closely with Musi as much as she does with him. Um, Well, I think it's a bit of both. I I think he was advised badly, but then the DA and people like Helen Zilla are responsible for hiring someone who hiring, electing someone who was so reliant on advice um, and and pretty much lost without it. and his problem is that he was, I don't really blame Maimani. I mean, he, he was always himself. I think people imagined him into being something other than he was, and he wasn't able to deliver that. Um, and that caused, you know, ambiguity and, and conflict and division and, and uncertainty, which are kill momentum in a political party and, and are real toxic stuff. You, you just don't want that. So you need conviction and, and decisive leadership and, and good, quick decision making and judgment. He just didn't have that stuff. It wasn't in him. And it's kind of why this new gig for his suits him quite well, because it's sort of hands off. He doesn't, he doesn't have an organization to run. He doesn't have to make any hard decisions. He just has to provide platforms and opportunities for other people. And And it's far better suited to his personality. Don't have to make any hard calls. You can just be above it all and sort of float there in the ether being morally superior, you know.
1: What's just confusing to me is, I think it's oftentimes, Ellen Ziller itself says this, that it doesn't really matter if it has a white leader, the Democratic Alliance. So why do they keep insisting on electing black leaders above everything else, whether it's Matibuku, um, forming a a pact with Rampella, Rampella, or Maimane, why did I keep insisting on doing this above all else? Um. Well, uh,
0: they've they've elected John Steenhuisen now. Um, but I, I mean I don't think they selected him on the basis that he was white. I think they selected him on the basis that he was a real leader. And, that, and that's actually, or, or at least a better leader than and, and And I think that's a significant shift. I mean, the DA started to believe its own um, kind of millenarian narrative, you know, uh, that internal narrative, w- which Helen Zilla was largely responsible for. Not just defining, but but um, hyperventilating inside the party and making it really acutely aware and, and believe that this is what the, the, the path to the promised land was. And that narrative was the DA will grow. It will make a breakthrough into the black electorate. Um, you know, some naturally DA-inclined person who shares the same DA values and principles will emerge. Um, all the better if that person is black because it's, it will demonstrate that the DA has made strides in, in areas that it hasn't traditionally dominated. And that's the future. And, and then we will take the ANC down anti voters will come to the DA. And Maimani emerged in the middle of this kind of millenarian belief system, and, and people thought he was something other than he was. I think the fact that they went backwards has caused people to look at first principles again and go, okay, but hold on, the real test should be, what does this person believe in? How good at they are making the right decisions in the right kind of way? And, and those are the sort of criteria we should look at.
1: So it's sort of a situation of, um, if you steer long enough into the abyss, the abyss stares back into you. So you focus on those issues and it starts to dominate you. Uh, it becomes an internal discussion.
0: Yes. So you, you, sort of, yeah, you, you become, you become trapped up in your own, um, narrative you, rather than defining the narrative, the, Narrative then begins to define you, and and you become subservient to it, and then you're trapped. You're trapped by because you've you've relinquished some of your values and principles to the narrative, and the narrative takes on a life of its own because it revolves around a personality nine times out of ten. And yeah, you Nancy know, had the same problem with Jacob Zuma. I mean, the the narrative when Zuma was elected was, you know, a man of the people who's going to take over from this detached philosopher, King, who was Mbeki, and he is going to restore the pride of the common man and the worker and and reorganize the state so that it's it's fair and equitable and, and get rid of all this kind of gear like economics. And that guy just went off on his own mission. And, you know, totally terrible on every front and and everyone had relinquished their values and principles to one in person. And and so you know, you had the trifecta Malema Vavi and and Blade and Zalmani could do nothing but watch everything unfold until it was too late
1: What do you think of um Ramaphosa's latest announcements of um uh, raising the energy cap from 10 megawatts to 100 megawatts and fifty uh, 50 share uh, uh 50% of South African airways being sold to, I, I think it's a consortium, a new consortium, African based. What do you think is going to happen there? Well, I think you
0: need to, the two decisions are different. Um, I think ESCOM is, <clears throat> you see, a good way of understanding ANC decision making or ANC government decision making is necessity. <laughs> the saying is necessity is the mother of invention. Um, EScom is the least negotiable of all South Africa's problems, um, and it is therefore most likely to induce in the ANC, admittedly after years and years of denial and pain and whatever, eventually it is going to induce in the ANC some kind of decision that is practical and makes economic sense. And this was it. I mean, clearly it was just a breaking point was reached and. They needed to do something, and then this was it. Um, the The SAA thing seems like a kind of red herring to me. I mean, I I haven't studied it close enough to work out exactly what's going on, but but this doesn't like seem in the same way. Escom is a genuine kind of way, a genuine kind of attempt to to fix SAA. It seems like the best solution they could come up with in their worldview, which was some kind of anc connected consortium which owns 51 percent technically but government returns control practically and whatever we're going to have to wait a bit to see exactly what that is and how that plays out
1: yeah and i can think that um, this new shareholder can have, wield immense power and if if he if he doesn't do anything beneficial it's sort of you're stuck at position a again it's sort of Yes, to contribute something, uh, something of value, whether it's the CEO or whatever. And if he doesn't, it's not going to help a big deal.
0: Yes. I mean, there is the incentive of a profit. You do, you do need to, whatever your, you know, inclinations in terms of power and stuff, you, you need to make money for, for your investment to work. So that's a good incentive to inject into to SAA, which has never had that before. How that'll play out, though, I don't know, you know, whether it just plays out by them cashing out after three years, or, I, I don't know, stripping assets, stripping, who knows what they'll do. Now, yeah. I'll tell you two other things that are interesting about both those decisions. <coughs> well, actually, one thing, I'm going to keep the other thing for a potential column. Um, but the um, the SACP is interesting. I mean, those guys had a bad week the last two weeks, you know, and. No one's paid much attention to the SACP since Romopozo was elected, but, th- but that the state of that organization is interesting. And both of these decisions would have been in affra- I mean, they put out some tortured statement that I, I can't make head of tail of as to what they actually think, whether they're against this or not. Um, but both of those decisions would have hurt them ideologically and are an indication that their influence is waning. And even outside of those decisions, that organization is in crisis. I mean, its leadership in the same way as the ACDP is sort of antiquated and old. It has no young communist league, which has been effectively eaten up by the EFF. I mean, there's just no future on offer. No young, bright communist idealists out there or, or thinkers. And and it's it's losing its grip on cabinet and the NEC ideologically and, and there's something to say about how this is going to play out for that party it's definitely something worth watching
1: no definitely um but yeah this has been a very interesting conversation i want to give you one last opportunity to add plug or say anything that you want to
0: um nothing nothing to say Watch it, uh,
1: read your columns probably we'll put the, the links in the description well, down below i wouldn't
0: Um, inflict that on anyone read them (laughs) if you need to sleep
1: but yeah thank you very much for your time and um if you made it this far in the discussion you've definitely enjoyed the content so please consider liking this video sharing it as wide as possible and subscribing to our youtube channel my name is donald this has been Worldview.